Welcome to the AR Bookshelf, a podcast by the Architectural Review. I'm Eleanor Beaumont, Deputy Editor of the AR. We are joined in this episode of the AR Bookshelf by the Canadian Centre for Architecture, also known as the CCA, based in Montreal in Canada. The CCA has been publishing books since before they had a building, maintaining an interest in exploring their ideas through different formats and with different people, and circulating their conversations. Their books provide material for long-term reference and sometimes complement their exhibitions. You can find their available books at the CCA Bookstore at their galleries and online. In collaboration with the CCA, we have carefully selected from their recent and upcoming publications to place on our bookshelf, to tell their stories and reach outside their pages, taking them for a walk. On our bookshelf in this chapter is CP138 Gordon Matter-Clark, Readings of the Archive, published in July 2020 and the culmination of three exhibitions between June 2019 and September last year that were part of the CCA's continued Out of the Box series. The project's director and contemporary architecture curator at the CCA, Francesco Garuti, explains why this book and Matter Clark's archive has relevance today. I really feel that we are living in a moment in which neoliberal urbanism is somehow swallowing up or absorbing capacity of uh, the architect in terms of being a sort of an influential agent to transform space. I really feel that, uh, you know, more and more special practitioners are invited uh, into kind of a simply camouflage or kind of a touch up um, real estate uh, developments in our cities, you know, adding a bit of well-being, a bit of idea of sustainability, but not really being able to structurally define what contemporary space is. And I think that going back to a figure like uh, Gordon Mata Clark, who has been in the, in the 70s, uh, one of the stronger uh, critical actor in physically, theoretically, and conceptually deconstructing what architecture meant and what, uh, not only the idea of public space, but the idea in itself of uh, conceiving space since those years. This idea of kind of reconceiving space-making practices as a actually technique to open up space to public, to a social dimension, to inclusivity, to kind of a reincorporating, finding way of reincorporating kind of neglected spaces and uh, social minorities is, is super important today for us. The CCA's Gordon Matter-Clark archive includes 1,200 photographs, sketchbooks, over 100 drawings, nearly 300 film reels and 71 books. In many ways, this material, the discarded offcut, the private correspondence, the personal snaps, constitutes the remaining evidence of Matter-Clark's artworks which were largely building-scale interventions that were then demolished. The Gordon Matter Collection at the CCA has a specific nature in the sense that um, somehow is more focused on what is after, before and around the artwork. So we are talking of archival material related to the production of the pieces, personal correspondences, uh, you know, connected to relationship around the production of the works travels, annotations, side notes, sketches, unrealized projects, everything that is at the margin of what we can define, you know, uh, the core production of a piece or what somehow the market, you know, throughout the years uh, has arrived to define as the pieces that are basically potentially consumed or commercialized in the market. The focus of this project 
was not that one of somehow rewrite uh, the history of the legacy of an artist as, as Gordon, was not about kind of a try to investigate again, uh, you know, a career, but in a way was about expanding the terrain or the context. And when I use the word context to me is the conceptual, but also uh, physical uh, definition of what context around uh, the practice of Gordon Matakarta. The margins are becoming a new narrative and this process, you know, didn't allow us only to basically, you know, study some of how basically the eyes of Gordon has been exploring days end from the sea, imagining, you know, the industrial site as a big environmental project, looking at the sky and the water, but has also allowed us to study what was around, you know, uh, something like the house of splitting in New Jersey. So seeing, you know, the, the neighborhood, seeing the people and the social fabric around those, you know, it's, it's a process that is basically also able to restate a different thing that maybe the process of commercialization and, uh, you know, the iconic kind of a character of some of the performances that Gordon did in a way pushed apart because we know the splitting, you know, is that house splitting in that kind of a work, but through the reincorporation of the outtakes that Hila Pelek did, we are able to see, you know, the neighborhood of that house. We are able to understand even more the critique toward the standardization of the, uh, of the conception in the architectural, you know, sense of the single family house in North America in those years in a much more evident way, because we see what is around. Three curators were selected for their different approaches to the archive. Hila Pelek, who chose to look at archive film, Jan Chatinier, who was drawn to Matta Clark's library, and Kitty Scott, who delved into his travel photographs. A figure like Hila Peleg, who has been always in between the production of, of films, so filmmaking, and as a curator and a scholar investigating filmmaking. Then, uh, you know, a figure like Jan Chatinier, who has been always exploring archive as tools for investigating the present, making them powerful, active instruments. And then also uh, Kitty Scott and her interest somehow into, in, into the anthropological reading of the figure of the artist or, you know, the relationship between an artwork and uh, the artist. And they were kind of then, in a way, uh, going directly to the different components of our collection. It was kind of uh, uh, interesting that they approach these margins or these edges, these liminal components of the archive you know, touching what somehow was, was part of their way of looking uh, at, 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 uh, at, our, at the archive in itself, but also at art, I would say, because Jan immediately decided to kind of to tackle uh, the private library, which is also in our collection, the private library of, of Gordon Matta Clark, and, and Kitty Scott, you know, this huge amount of private photographs of all the travels and the journeys that are Gordon has been conducted throughout the years um, around the globe, being even as a sort of a pioneer figure of artist traveler, I could even say. And then with Hila Peleg entering into the cinematographic production, but not at the core of it, but again at the margin, trying to recuperate or re-analyze, re-study what was, uh, or what, a, was, was discarded. So all the outtakes, they were somehow part of the, the production, but then taken out from Gordon or the different figures who has been involved in the production of the films in the moment that there was the editing process. Highlighting that the marginal 
is the center, was part of its own statement. The margins are becoming a new narrative. And this process, you know, didn't allow us only to basically, you know, study some of, um, you know, the how basically the eyes of Gordon has been exploring days end from the sea, imagining, you know, the industrial site as a big environmental project, looking at the sky and the water, but has also allowed us to study what was around, you know, uh, something like the house of splitting in New Jersey, seeing, you know, the, the neighborhood, seeing people and the social fabric around those. Through the reincorporation of the outtakes that Hila Pelek did, we are able to see, you know, the neighborhood of that house. We are able to understand even more the critique toward the standardization of the conception in the architectural you know, sense of the single family house in North America in those years in a much more evident way because we see what is around. So the, the three levels which are going from you know, the problem of the archive in itself, the curatorial approach and the notion of context as actually physical one are becoming together uh, a sort of a statement which is the statement of the CCA but as you said is also the statement of of the approach to space and to art that was at the core of the Gordon's practice. The experience of going through all of this material, I think would give any researcher great insight into how he was looking. In his travel photographs of Italy, Mexico, Guatemala and other places all over the world, Kitty Scott could see the careful and deliberate way Matter Clark captured and saw the world, even outside what is traditionally defined as his artworks. You know, one of the greatest gifts artists give us, right? If if they do anything, they show us another way of looking and another way of seeing. And I think this particular treasure trove of material is exemplary in that way. So much of his work exists as photography. That's how we know it, right? And so there are these kind of iconic photographs that we see over and over again. And we experience, of course, there are fragments of buildings and such. But I think what's really nice about this is, you know, these photographs give us deeper insight into how he was using the medium, how he was thinking about the medium. I didn't necessarily focus on what I would call his work here, but, uh, you know, he goes to Paris at one point and sort of like any tourist photographs the side, you know, looking out the window of the plane and the engines and the wing and such. And, um, you know, he does it repeatedly over the visit there. And of course, we've probably all done that at one point in time. So he immediately becomes relatable, you know, in that way as well. In many ways, the three curators mirrored Gordon Matter Clark's practice looking where others are not looking, to pick up from the cutting room floor, to find value in the discarded, the quiet and the marginal. The book sat quietly on the shelf, the film footage cut and rejected, the photographs carefully stored. You know, he's often somebody who's looking on the edges of things. He's often looking between. Of course, when he was working, you know, in the United States, he was often looking for these locations that were ruins, that were on the edges, that were not the places where other people were going. They were very, they were kind of marginal. He's sort of looking to see. Matter Clark found value where others saw none. Where some might see an unremarkable market scene or semi-derelict warehouse, Matter Clark saw beauty and potential. One of his first works was Photo Fry, an almost literal process of alchemy that sought to question humans' long, fruitless quest to turn things into gold. For his first show in New York, in a, in a, in a gallery, he decided to uh, install a pan in the very space of the exhibition and fry uh, properly transform photograph by uh, exposing them to extreme heat. Jan Chatagnier, who explored Matter Clark's personal library in the CCA archive, 
describes the preoccupation he had with the idea of alchemy. His very first works of art or very first intervention in the art world were based on this very idea of an alchemical process of transformation. On his bookshelves, the most important uh, kind of ensemble of his library was uh, dedicated to alchemy. It's uh, actually something that he developed from a proper research, not academic at all, I guess, always pretty intuitive and organic, but uh, very well uh, documented by a very precise selection of books on this particular subject. And uh, Photo Fry can also be read as a sort of, uh, I don't know, anthropological slash poetical way to invent a new technique uh, that is not to photograph, but to photo fry something. And the, the image is one of a sort of way to, in the meantime, destruct the support, so destruct, destroy the paper, and to, in the meantime, create something new using this gold leaf and to create an unpredictable way of transforming the matter into something that becomes a sculpture that he used as a gift to several friends for, for Christmas and sent them in small boxes in the tradition of, I don't know, Marcel Duchamp or Joseph Cornell or male art, perhaps in a way that was a sort of remain of a performance. His documentation of alchemy was not a fascination for the, only the mysteries of the occult tradition, but a way to renew his approach to art making. And alchemy, a transformation, a molecular reconfiguring of material, ran more deeply in Mataclar's work than literally turning things to gold. For Mataclar, an exhibition or a work of art was first a series of ingredients. And in the exhibition, we showed one document that is actually entitled Ingredients that comes from his different notebooks that we found in the archive. And he really like properly conceived an exhibition as a series of elements that you can, uh, of course, arrange in different ways, but also uh, kind of uh, melt into each other that can, if you uh, put an ingredient with another, create a sort of unexpected alchemy in the technical sense. Food was a restaurant slash uh, social space slash collaborative sculpture in the form of a communitarian place where anyone could eat and cook and meet and talk and transform matter in this al alchemical spirit. And it was also a sort of a continuous performance, sort of continuous way to integrate in the social fabric of New York City at the time in relation with the evolution of the real estate situation. Perhaps this is one of the lessons of uh, Mada Clark that we could take for and understand what is happening today is something that is supposed to be shared as a meal or as a party, as a, a gathering. In Matta Clark's collection of travel snaps, Kitty Scott found that this interest in ingredients and the processes and economies of food resurfaced there too. I think when he's at the markets, there's a lot of photographs at markets, which are quite fantastic, and a lot of photographs of food, of course, and a lot of photographs of uh, raw meat and um cuts of meat, people walking through with big pieces of meat. And I think a real interest in the kind of social, social gatherings, collective communities through that. 
you know, you can you can sort of see like how he goes on to open something like food in Soho. You know, food is food is obviously a kind of topic for him and the kind of sociality sociality that sort of forms around food. He he sees the value in that kind of gathering and that's it piques his interest. As well as transforming materials, chemicals into photography, raw ingredients into food, Matta Clark turned his gaze to the city in the way that land was transformed by yet another alchemical process into a commodity and cold hard cash. Uh, in his studio, in his very first experiment, the first, one of the first things is that he organized an exhibition that was based on the growth of a tree that was growing in the center of, the, of his uh, work slash exhibition slash activist space in New York. And the tree was growing inside the building and was destroying the building in the meantime and was kind of confronting this very special time of the growth of, of an organic, of a living element and the decay and the remains and the ruins of, uh, of the uh, real estate speculation and modern activity and the capitalist society in New York. Laura Phipps, curator at the Whitney Museum, examined Hilla Peleg's work for the CCA's Gordon Matter Clark Out of the Box series, which focused on film footage outtakes that captured some of the artist's most famous works, including Day's End, which encompassed the cutting of a large hole in the dilapidated Pier 52 building on the Hudson River. Matta Clark's Day's End was really meant to be transformative, to alter one's relationship with the city and with the river and with the sun. But what I also came to think is that he was really also raising concerns about the way that the city had failed to address the architectural and structural needs of its citizens. There was never an understanding that any of this would be permanent, right? Like these buildings would stay forever. Uh, you don't have to know that much about the history of, of New York City to sort of get at that understanding. In particular, these buildings and this waterfront that really had changed just was a constant flux um, since the beginning of New York as a colonial space. It was really important for me to remember when this work was taking place and what the state of the city really was. You know, in 1975, I think really just maybe a couple of months before he started actually cutting, New York City had been on the precipice of bankruptcy and was had just been sort of rescued. Municipal social services had been cut, jobs related to those, all these things that made New York City livable and affordable for those without extensive means were sort of disappearing. And I think that, um, you know, there's a way in which the art world has tended to look at this time in the city's history and romanticize the sort of inexpensive living expenses, lofts and studio spaces. And and I don't think it should be discounted that this that the ability to live cheaply for some people did empower artists and engender creativity, but the gentrification and the increasing economic instability that sort of grows out of this rescue of the city took root, I think, there, has really taken a toll on the city. And in some ways, Matta Clark's sort of commentary on that felt feels prescient and maybe even predictive somehow. Obviously, you see stronger or maybe more um, strident references to this failure of a city to provide shelter in works like Jack's, where he was, you know, creating these sort of makeshift shelters or um, fake estates where he's actually purchasing up this property that has, quote unquote, no value. But at this moment, to to try and create a space that really 
highlights a different relationship with the city, I think is not far removed from those concerns. We are talking of basically an abandoned, you know, industrial site that was uh, part of, you know, yeah, th- those, those areas of the city of New York that were really not considered as part of the, of the urban in itself. It's not by chance that uh, then <clears throat> an artist like Gordon reimagined to basically reincorporate uh, a piece of a city like that one as a sort of a kind of a park for water and air into, into something that was pushed out. Francesco Garuti explains how, in Day's End, Matta Clark brought this marginalised part of the city back into the centre. Jan Chatagnier sees the same re-evaluation of public space in Matta Clark's food project. Matta Clark managed in some way to redirect all this energy and money and visibility from a certain, I don't know, elite to uh, some kind of uh, shared space with persons who perhaps need more than us to be supported and taken care of. There's a certain radicality in in Matta Clark's practice that made him produce works that were more situations, uh, that were more like shared moments with an audience that were based on this idea of an, a work of art as a preparation and then a shared a sort of time space more than um, a commodity or an object that you can just produce in the studio and hang on the wall and, uh, and on which you can speculate, which makes his work now almost uh, invisible in, certain, in a certain way because lots of his works were destroyed afterwards. Matter Clark even turned his chainsaw to the art market, questioning the idea of value and financialization within the discipline itself. Matter Clark passed away in 1978 at the age of 35. He was in New York at the same time as his contemporary, the artist David Hammonds, who was born in the same year, 1943, though their paths never crossed. Nearly 50 years after Matter Clark made his incision in Pier 52, and almost exactly the same site, David Hammonds has made his own day's end a monument to Gordon Matterclock. Essentially a minimal sculpture, a line drawing in space that exactly outlines the pier shed that was there. So it's 320 feet long and 52 feet high. It's made from essentially the narrowest or thinnest um, metal that could support that structure. Hammonds doesn't recall knowing anything about Day's End when it was made or while it was still um, extant. So I've been very careful not to create or to overstate any connections or affinities necessarily, but it's sort of obvious through the careers of both artists or the practices that, that there are these shared concerns around a changing city, about the thinking of what is available and to whom as the city changes throughout both of their practices. They're really employing their work to expose and to interrogate and to manipulate power structures and to really, I think, aggressively reimagine the substance of of everyday life of the cityscape. The Hammond's piece exists. It lives there. It is sort of permanently there. It's a bit of a buffer or sort of a rebuff to urban development. You know, Matta Clark couldn't have thought that that the space he was using was was permanent and probably could have imagined many different things that could have happened there from, you know, wildly commercial to not. Maybe it's ended up somewhere in between, I'm not sure. The fact that this Hammond's work 
is such a such a minimal structure it's permanently installed it really makes that space sort of off limits for development essentially it, it's a place of undevelopment it is this really aggressive reimagining of what's what development is Matter Clark's work and practice are frequently mined by architects and spatial practitioners for his acute detangling of the economic, political and social structures on and around which our urban fabrics are woven. Francesco Garuti reminds us why his work is such an important reference for architects. The problem of designing space in the hands of the practitioners is really, to me, is equal or you know, means designing surfaces designing, again, a fake or placebo effect connected to sustainability. It goes together with the idea of well-being, which is totally superficial in certain cases. The work of Gordon has been always, not only because literally has been, he has been deconstructing or peeling off layers of architectural component, but has really kind of pushed us to look at what were the structural things composing architectural spaces. So it's about, you know, looking at the pipes, you know, behind the wall. It's about looking at what type of uh, sense can have the idea of uh, air and air pollution in connection for a project like the air uh, car, for example, has been pushing us, uh, I don't know, to study again, what is in between infrastructures, what is lost in relationship to the idea itself of what is property as pushing us to reimagine that a space in certain cases is made out of the social relationships of the people and, you know, the physical structure has to come with that. As well as working physically in the margins, Matter Clark operated in between disciplines, pushing against the edges of architecture and space making into other disciplines, as Jan Chatonnier and Kitty Scott remind us. His work was in the meantime coming from architecture, from sculpture, and f- was a sort of a performance of destruction that becomes another way of constructing a situation. You know, he's somebody who's pushing against what he learned in architecture school, what he learned uh, from Colin Rowe. And I think, you know, he's on the spectrum between, let's say, architecture and ethnography or architecture and anthropology. There's something almost frighteningly prophetic about Matter Clark's work with such an urgent prescience and relevance to the multiple crises we're facing today. Facing a situation now where we understand being isolated in our own space, the importance of sharing a time space with others in a moment when the market is so powerful and the, the anxiety of us and artists and everyone in the art world not to have context where to work make us sometimes forget that 99% of the space where we can work and practice and share what we do with an audience is outside of the institution and the market and the galleries. You know, I think it's very easy with a contemporary eye to look back on even a work like Day's End and be like, oh, well, was that also just a portent of, of gentrification? I don't think that was the feeling then, but I also think that Matta Clark had a sophisticated enough grasp on value and society to sort of start questioning that in his own work as well. I don't see Matta Clark as someone who would have clung on to sort of an old, the way things were. I think that's something he would have had in common with Hammonds is that it's, you know, it's all about sort of adaptability and 
using your practice to sort of continue to talk about these concerns, but not assume that you can go back to something. How can we use archives to say something about contemporary time? How can we say something about the present? We are talking of basically a pioneer figure who has been saying and telling that, you know, the marginal should have been the center. Out of the box, Gordon Matter-Clark is more a way of treating or handling an archive than a finished and discrete series of exhibitions, offering visitors and readers a lesson in looking in between. The exhibitions are in motion and at the Museum de Moderna in Salzburg, Austria, between 13th of November 2021 and 6th of March 2022, reimagined as one single exhibition and in dialogue with the Generali Foundation, whose Matter-Clark collection the exhibition will combine. The -the out-of-the-box framework forms the armature for the exhibition in the same way it forms the structure for the printed publication. Edited by Claire Lubell and co-published by the CCA and Koenig Books, the book itself, CP138 Gordon Matter-Clark, Readings of the Archive, is a deliberate and careful exercise in relating a constellation of exhibits and displays spread over three exhibitions into a single linear narrative, allowing overlaps and kinships between the bodies of work to come to the fore. It is the same practice that has guided and informed this podcast, which itself has pulled at threads and woven them together in a new medium again, centering and finding value in the salvage. Thank you for listening. CP138 Gordon Matter-Clark Readings of the Archive is available now from the CCA Bookstore. Please head to architectural-review.com for more information about the books and exhibitions discussed in this podcast as well as more from the AR's archive on the work of Gordon Matter-Clark. The AR depends on its subscribers to bring you fearless storytelling, independent critical voices, and thought-provoking projects from around the world. Consider supporting the AR with a subscription today. Visit architectural-review.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Students receive 30% off.